Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz, editor of the journal and regular contributor to the podcast. Today on the show, we talk with Arkady Martin, author of A Memory Called Empire. Our discussion covers history, colonization, assimilation, identity, and how to write a great book. I was joined by editors Sam Steinke and Molly Krassel. Enjoy the talk. Arkady Martin is a speculative fiction writer and has Dr. Anna Linden Weller, a historian of the Byzantine Empire, and a city planner. She is currently a policy advisor for the New Mexico Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department, where she works on climate change mitigation, energy grid modernization, and resiliency planning. Under both her names, she writes about border politics, rhetoric, propaganda, and the edges of the world. Arkady grew up in New York City, and after some time in Turkey, Canada, Sweden, and Baltimore, lives in Santa Fe with her wife, the author Vivian Shaw. Find her online at arcadymartin.net or on Twitter as at arcadymartin. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. The novel deals with memory in interesting ways. Uh, most directly, it appears in the title. However, it's also evident in the Imago technology of the stationers, which allows them to pass down their consciousness from person to person. When Mahit's Imago uh, malfunctions, she says that she feels unmoored from her past. Uh, I couldn't help but draw a parallel between her personal affliction and that of the Empire, which tends to hold on to the trappings of the past without any real ties to them. Like I'm thinking of the fact that communication takes place using holograms, but has sort of wax seals. Uh, in fact, Mahit notes that at one point, uh, Texlacan is about emulating what should already be dead. Can you talk a little bit about uh, personal and cultural memory in the novel? Absolutely, since it's basically the central theme of yeah, the novel. Right. You picked up on some of the really key thematic statements, uh, for Mahit anyway. And also one of the big differences that when I started thinking about how I wanted to portray questions about institutional memory, like a lot of the impulse of writing this novel came from, at the time I, I had begun working with a small nonprofit and we realized we had no institutional memory at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that there was no way of figuring out what the person who was no longer on the board had known because <laughs> uh, they weren't there. And, I mean, there were a lot of other things that went into the novel, but I had this moment of, okay, how do we deal with this? How do you deal with this on a cultural level? Mm-hmm. We're not very good at it. We're not good at passing memory um, and skill, mm-hmm. in, not in the sense of teaching, but in the sense of, like, knowing mm-hmm. from one generation to the next, whether that's a biological generation or a workplace generation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I immediately wanted to play with in working with memory and the way that memory constructs culture was to contrast two very different modes of dealing with the same problem. For LaSalle Station, they have a intensely uh, tight resource management yeah. problem. They've got 30,000 people max. Yeah. Um, and humans don't grow any faster on LaSalle than they do in like on Earth. So you still got that generational time lag. Um, and they live on a space station, so their cancer incidence is way high and their accident incidence is way high. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to make sure that you don't lose a incredibly vital piece of institutional knowledge, like how to 
keep the life support system running. Mm-hmm. And because I get to write science fiction, which, and this is the delight of mm-hmm. science fiction for me, I get to ask that question and then I get to come up with an answer that kind of blows it right open. Uh-huh. Like, what if? Uh-huh. It doesn't have to be realistic. Um, Imago technology is not realistic. Um, I have a neuroscientist friend who I apologized to when I said, I'm just not going <laughs> to listen to all the nice things you told me. Uh, none of this works. Yeah. So, but I wanted to think of, all right, what if the way a society dealt with this problem was to link up skill sets to memory via basically work mode. So you never lost that institutional knowledge because you shared it with the person who had your job last. And that created a very interesting society to play with. So he does feel incredibly unmoored when she loses that connection. Mm -hmm. Even if it is a new connection, it's a cultural connection which tells her that she's part of this chain, this process. Mm -hmm. So when she doesn't have it, it's like suddenly not being herself, suddenly not being part of the long memory of her own people. It's it's also disturbing to her when the sort of merging takes place, right? On on like a personal level, it's like, stop trying to control me, you know? Yeah, well, she and Yaskander aren't really, like, this is not how this is supposed to go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Right. They are, in fact, very, very compatible. That was not a bad match in any way. Mm -hmm. But they don't have the kind of guidance and time and slow training Mm. to really get used to each other. And then things go wrong. And the ways that they go wrong involve some of these involuntary conflations of person where he moves her or his memories take over hers. And that's something that if she was at home, if if she was had gotten the imago of like the uh, second string engineer in the hydroponics department, she would have gone to like medical wing and been like, "This is kind of screwed up. I need some help." <laughs> yeah, right. And she would have gotten it. Right, right. Like this is not so unusual that they don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's that she doesn't have access. Yeah. And the big contrast that you mentioned in the question is between how LaSalle does it and how Tixkalan does it. Tixkalan is much more realistic, actually, in the way that they do um, cultural and institutional memory. That's because in a large amount, uh, the way Tixkalanli culture works is based on Middle Byzantine culture, Mm -hmm. um, which was what I did my PhD on. Mm -hmm. And that is a culture where skill and intellectual achievement and, like, being a clever person is entirely based on being able to access the stories and symbolic reference of the past. Yeah. And this is something that you see a lot in particularly pre-modern imperial cultures, but in almost every culture that has, like, a strong ideology, like the the way that you remember an event in the past, the way you make references to that event in the past. And Mahid finds it weird... Because for her, it's like they're going through the motion. Yeah. There's no actual link. And for the Kixka and Lipsum, they're not going through the motions. Like for them, they just, this is not going through the motions. This is keeping that thousands of year long history constantly alive and yeah. evolving. Yeah. Um, they're a culture that writes a lot of fan fiction, basically. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I kept thinking of being sort of a recovering Catholic. I kept thinking about the Catholic yeah. faith, you know what I mean? And how 
those uh-huh. outside kind of look at it as super ritualistic and maybe beautiful in some ways, but sort of unmoored from, you know, my in-laws say, why do you kneel down at certain times during the, you know, the mass? And, you know, a lot of younger kids would say, well, because I have no idea. Ritual action yeah. create linkage. Yeah, like community. Repeating ritual action creates a kind of actual altered state in the human consciousness. Yeah. Um, especially in uh, religious situations, but also in cultural situations. Think about like people at baseball games singing the national anthem. Yep, mm-hmm. that's what I was just thinking of. And that kind of, okay, now we're at the ball game. Yeah, really. yeah. That's created by that event. And it has physical motion to it because physical motion cues memory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I think I'm thinking of like how fiercely, so think about football games, taking a knee during the national anthem uh-huh. is sacrosanct. You know, it's like, how dare you um, do it that during our ritual? You know that. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, what that is is a, a substitution of a ritual of protest yeah. into what has previously been a ritual of celebration. Yeah. And it's a category violation for the people who are really offended by it. Yeah. Um, and category violation tends to be the point at which you get these really outsized, intense reactions. Yeah. Like, this does not belong here. This is wrong. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that they even you they even do, um, like, the national anthem at... Um, it was at a motor derby. <laughs> I went, that's all. A motor derby. Yeah. yeah, it was like, you know, it was like monster trucks, you know, like, crashing into each other. But before <laughs> that, they were like, all right, please, well, everyone stand for yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about as American as it gets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, early on in the novel, we learned that Texaclani names are derived from objects and numbers. Uh, I couldn't help but thinking about the way that this literally objectif- objectifies them and also sort of recalled the connotations that are associated with being, you know, just another number um, as, and how that idiom applies to personhood. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the importance of naming uh, in the novel? fascinating take on it, and not one I've heard before. Um, I actually wasn't thinking about the just a number thing at all, um, though that's a very interesting way of thinking about it. I borrowed this naming convention, the number noun naming convention, from um, Mesoamerican people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like if you think about like one jaguar. like mm-hmm. it's, it's like the, the, na- the ritual names of um, Mixtec and uh, Mexica, uh, priests and rulers and nobles. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's also la- layered in Tutexcalan is some uh, Aztec uh, and uh, triple alliance um, imperial thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, the blood sacrifice stuff. Yeah. They're mostly over it. Mm-hmm. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> so that was where I got the idea of doing the names that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted them to feel very different from the Lysolstation names, which are derived from Armenian. Mm. Um, and I wanted them to feel alien, but not too alien, without having to like make up a lot of words, mm-hmm. which is always the bane of writing far future science fiction. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make up a word for like a normal thing. I'm just going to use the word that we have. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the way I thought about their names was that this was a way of showing how linked up they are to symbolism. Mm-hmm. 
So all of those names and all of the numbers, too, have specific symbolic value to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kinds of names that they choose show the kinds of things that have symbolic valence. Yeah. Um, so it's, I have elaborate rules for Tixloma names. <laughs> um, of course I do. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, they're, they're, most of them are plants or minerals or phenomena. Mm-hmm. So you have this real connection to the observed physical world, which is something that I try also to emphasize in the way that I describe um, the jewel of the world, the way I describe the places that they live. They are hyper-focused on visual culture. Mm. Um, All this architecture, all these flowers, all of this sort of opulent beauty. That's a focus on not just materiality, but the materiality of the natural and the architectural world Mm -hmm. that I really wanted to like pull into something as basic as a naming system. And also it creates some fun opportunities for me, like um, 36 all-terrain tundra. Yes. 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 I do like that. They play, they say how ridiculous, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, they, they understand. It's the funniest thing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's a little bit like naming your kid moon unit. Yeah, right, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was like not a... not quite there, as bad as Moon Unit, but a little bit like, you know, the, what Gwen Paltrow did. Like, Apple. Yeah, Apple. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking there was a Seinfeld episode, I think, where someone wanted to name their child Seven. Yep. Right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. And George was just like, Seven? <laughs> yeah, right. Was, Didn't Kanye West name his kid Northwest or something like that? I think he did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yes. That's 36 altering. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's yeah. the equivalent of it. That is, you know, that's exactly the right kind of joke, actually. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if this was any sort of influence, but um, while you were talking, I was sort of thinking of the way you were expressing the influence of the visual and the artistic and stuff like that. And then, I don't know, several times while I was reading this book, I thought of Dune um, and the Mm -hmm. way that sort of Iraqis are influenced by the terrain, right? So like to culturally to to spit at someone when you meet them is a is a greeting uh, uh, an honorific, right? Because you're giving them your water. water. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, there's sort of parallels to to things like that uh, in your book. Well, Dune is a huge influence. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dune is a huge influence in the sense that it's always been. A, it was one of the first, I read it way too early. I think I was like 11. But that that's my baseline for yeah. political science fiction in the space opera mode. Yeah. And, of course, there's a ton of, like, subconscious influence in here. And I also love that exact thing you're, that you're pointing out, the way that Herbert was very aware of and brought out the influence of landscape and life way mm. on habit and name. Yeah. Um, I'm trained as a historian, which means that I think a lot about the processes that create culture. Yeah. And I also really like writing about architecture and flowers mm-hmm. it's fun so <laughs> some of this book was pure self-indulgence yeah like i wish to create a culture where i get to do that yeah and we're we enjoyed it too we did <laughs> i'm so glad 
Um, you've touched a little bit on it so far, but can you talk more about what the process of building a world through language, the Texcalanli versus Dacianer languages and worlds are a little bit based on, you said, uh, like Byzantine and Armenian, but what was the process like of building them into what they are? Did the location inform the language, the language, the location, or did they play off each other? I think some of both, um, but... I'm not one of those writers who does like a world building notebook mm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's very organic for me. I knew what it, I wanted it to feel like, both of them, in a kind of aesthetic sense. Mm-hmm. And then I just made things up as I went along and <laughs> tried not to contradict myself too much. Um, but I really start with that sense of aesthetic. And the sense of aesthetic for Texcalan came out of Byzantium, because that was what I was studying um, for like 10 years, and it was where I had really encountered the concepts of imperialism and assimilation that I was exploring in the book. But I didn't want it to feel like yet another iteration of Romans in space, even mm-hmm. if they're Byzantines in space. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to go looking for other other empires I could pull sort of feelings from, not specifics at all. Yeah. But the way that um, sort of that, that aesthetic overlay, and one of the places I went was um, the Aztecs, and one of the places I went was the Mongol um, Empire, especially the Pax Mongolica, huh. um, the peace of the Mongols. The idea that after this incredibly destructive period of intense conquering in piles of skulls higher than your city walls, after that there's this incredible amount of free movement and trade and upward mobility. Mm. And that kind of poison trade-off of imperial conquest was something that was that I wanted to have the feeling of. Um, in terms of the language, Texcalanli is based partially on classical Nahuatl, and I use a Nahuatl dictionary to find like base terms it's partially also mixed in with Byzantine Greek, and I stole the plural from Hebrew. <laughs> I'm kind of a magpie with languages. Mm. Um, I really love historical linguistics. So I don't have anything like a full grammar, but I know what letters can go in and sounds can go in the language mm. um, for Tixcolon. And in terms of the station, because... There's this um, backstory to how I came up with the idea for the book, which is I wanted to sort of retell in a really different way um, the conquest of the Armenian city of Ani in the end of before, which is about assimilation and um, killing your culture to save your culture and a whole bunch of stuff. So Lysel always was going to be a little bit Armenia in space. Um, and I speak some Armenian and read classical Armenian pretty well. So all of the stationer names are based off of Armenian. You can probably actually backform the words if you work at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, spoilers for book two. I will give you a tiny, tiny thing. <laughs> <laughs> so... Stationer just has more consonants and sounds in it mm-hmm. than ye average Tixlanism is comfortable pronouncing at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> they have a fairly limited set of consonants, mm-hmm. um, which you can actually notice if you look at oh, the yeah. words that I've given you in Tixlanly. 
Um, and stationer has way more than English. Mm. <laughs> so they pronounce things terribly when they're learning. <laughs> um, but my choices about the languages really, in part, came out. It really comes from that aesthetic sense that I wanted it to feel a certain way. And also, I just love the sound of Armenian. It's a beautiful language. Mm. So getting to play with it a little bit uh, was really nice. I think I'm going to have to check some Armenian out after this. I don't know much about it. <laughs> it's an Indo-European isolate. Um, huh. Good luck. There are no loan words except from Persian. Wow. So, <laughs> and Arabic a bit. Oh, good. A challenge. <laughs> yeah. So along the lines of language, um, Mahit has studied the text Kalanli language extensively through text, but she's never truly been in an immersive environment until she enters the city. She is envious of Three uh, Seagrass's seemingly effortless oration and control of the language. Obviously, there is so much gained from directly interacting with a language, but Mahit has observations of the culture of Texcalan that Three Seagrass and Twelve Azalea don't share. Do you believe that a purely textual study of a language is incomplete? And how do an outsider's insights to a culture still contribute to that culture? Well, those are good questions. <laughs> um, yes, I think that purely textual study of a language is incomplete. And I say this from direct experience. Because I have been a medieval historian, most of the languages I learned, I didn't speak. I mm. only read them. Mm. Um, some of them, because no one speaks them anymore. Mm -hmm. But some of them, um, like French, actually, I can't speak, but I can read. <laughs> and this makes me completely useless in France. Mm. I feel like the strangest version of an illiterate, like a backwards illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> and the ability to interact verbally, to play verbally in a language, um, and to have that back and forth with other people. That's what language is for, mm. is for communicating with people, whether that's out loud or in writing or over a recording. Without the communicative element, I don't think it can be complete. It's mm. observational. It can be great, but it's not full. Yeah. And Mahit is really, really aware of that. I mean, she's mm -hmm. as close to fluent as you can get for someone who hasn't had a long period of immersion. Mm -hmm. She's definitely basically got the equivalent of like a master's degree in the language. Mm -hmm. So she's been in classes where she never speaks anything but Tixkalunli. She probably only speaks Tixkalunli with some of her friends. Mm -hmm. She's very comfortable, but she's not native. And she doesn't have idiom, and she doesn't have mm -hmm. practice thinking on her feet when she's encountering things that are surprising. Yeah. Even some of the And it does give her some distance. Yeah. Uh, and that distance is real valuable for her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just thinking of, uh, speaking of that distance, some of the, so Mahid has has a very strong grasp of the language, but then there are so many cultural things that are mysterious to her. Like, I was very surprised to learn when they are talking about what to do with Xander's body, she doesn't seem quite to know what the Texcalanli death practices are, or, like, the food that they eat is just baffling and mysterious uh, to yeah. her. And obviously she would have no context for those things, being from Lizelle Station, just the 
the culture and the food and everything is so very different, but I'm surprised that it's not things that she learned about in her studies. Well, she knows about them in a kind of deeply academic way Mm -hmm. and not necessarily in a way that reflects modern Tixcolonly culture. Mm, Yeah. A lot of her information comes from media Mm. and Tixcolonly media is historically focused. Right. So, yeah, she's watched like the equivalent of a K-drama about um, <laughs> like things that happened 400 years ago. Like maybe eight times she's watched that one. Yeah. But that doesn't tell her about street food. Right? Yeah. And there's also a real difference between reading about something. I'm thinking of the food especially here. Reading about what a food is like and actually smelling, tasting, and seeing it are very different experiences. I went to Mexico City for the first time last year. I had a wonderful time. It's an amazing place. And I had thought when I was going there, I am going to try absolutely everything. Yeah. I am going to eat those ant eggs. I sure am. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds really cool. (laughs) Formic acid. Yeah. And then I ordered an omelet with the ant eggs in it and I looked at them and I was like, oh God, mm-hmm. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ate other things that were weird yeah. but that one just threw me yeah. and it wasn't that I wasn't, it wasn't even that I hadn't seen pictures. Yeah. It's the difference of having it in front of you mm-hmm. and that kind of, Americans are really bad at eating insects. Yeah. Yes. We are. <laughs> we are. Yeah. There's an ingrained cultural taboo about you don't eat the insect. It's yeah. Not <laughs> yeah. Um, and even when I was like, it's like eating fish roe, which I would <laughs> do all the time, mm-hmm. it still didn't work. Like, oh, yeah. there are little tiny ants in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, Mahit has no equivalent of Anthony Bourdain visiting <laughs> Texcoline. <laughs> no, she doesn't really. And that's because the, uh, LaSalle is, in fact, relatively culturally protectionist. Yeah. They're already being like deeply infiltrated by Texcoline culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the popular thing. Yeah. But it, I, I think of it as the way that there's like a McDonald's in every country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's a lot of pushback from the on the governmental and the educational level of, no, you don't get to have access to that. You shouldn't like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, we've brushed a little on the linguistic differences. Um, I was really interested in the like circular and double meaning of the uh, Tixcalan, like, the jewel of the world is the city. The city is the world. The words are the same. And the meaning is uh-huh. highly contextual. How do you feel, um, given that, that language informs a person's worldview? So, first of all, I must declare that I do not believe in the strong sucker work hypothesis because it is wrong. Okay. <laughs> and secondly, <laughs> language is absolutely fundamental to worldview. Um, not in the sense that if you don't have a word for a thing, you can't imagine the thing, because no. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the sense that a language where that conflation of meaning is built in, where you have one word for empire, world, universe, mm-hmm. correct reality, mm-hmm. and that's all one word, maybe with slightly different pronunciations, but all based off the same root, that creates an association which is automatic. Mm. 
And that association is a very deep one, and it is an unconscious bias. Mm. Um, and for Mahit coming into that and knowing that association is there, but not having it written into her from her first language, from her native language, she both can notice where the conflation is happening mm-hmm. and sometimes pulls the wrong meaning out of the yeah. like selection of possible. Mm. So essentially, I think that that kind of linguistic byplay is really fundamental to baseline cultural practice. And I mean, again, to like these one that we run into all the time, think about the word freedom in America. Mm-hmm. Like what exactly does that mean? Yeah. Anyway? yeah. Right. And can you untangle it from all the other things that it means and from the political meanings that it has yeah. and how those change? Right. And that's just one of many. Yeah. It makes me think right now I'm reading infinite jest and there's mm-hmm. a Canadian character who's talking to steeply, uh, uh, American character and they're discussing freedom and what, what America's version of freedom is. And it's really foreign to the character, the Canadian character. Yeah, even when they share a language. I actually have some questions about you because I know that we've been talking a lot today about like the historical factors that have gone into you writing this book. But I'm actually really curious to know where else you drew inspiration from like if there were pop culture things that you drew inspiration from when writing this or just things in your own life i suppose but just where else like where did this book really like come from you know i started writing it right when i finished my phd dissertation a lot of it came from the ideas that i was exploring there but a lot of it also comes from being a person I'm Jewish. I was born in New York City. I've lived in a lot of places. And I think of myself as an American, but I also have that constant sense of contingent belonging, which Mm -hmm. comes from my cultural background. And then I went and I lived in Turkey. I lived in Canada. I lived in Sweden. I lived in the UK. And the feeling of being just alien enough to never really get deep into the culture. Mm-hmm. Even when I, even when but the language that we're speaking was my language, like in the UK or uh, and in Canada, or one that I was learning very rapidly um, in Sweden, right. um, or one that I knew some of in Turkey. Mm-hmm. So uh, just that deep sense of being aware of exile, aware yeah. of not ever quite being attached mm. yeah. and wanting to be, yeah. but also knowing that to actually be would be to give up parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that in mind, then, do you see yourself and like those things that have influenced you as a person, do you see yourself then reflected more in a certain character or particular characters over others, whether it's Mahit or like different characters throughout the book? The interesting thing is I've given Mahit that whole kind of complex about mm-hmm. exile belonging. Um, but the character I, ident- I identify the most with is Christy Grass. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> enormously. Yeah. Like, I, 
I, Three Seagrass is me, age 26. Yeah. Which, yeah. <laughs> which is vaguely frightening when I actually think about that. But yeah, being glorious ambition and all. Um, <laughs> and getting into situations way above your pay grade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, that's a personality thing. Like, I, I built her out of some of my own, like, personality traits. And the heat is the one who I gave the emotional component to, but yeah. is, I don't really think of her as being like a reflection of me really very much at all. We're very different people. I guess the reason I asked that is because I, I was kind of thinking back to um, like interviews that Stephanie Meyer has done and how <laughs> she's like, I'm Bella. <laughs> and we were all like, wow, really? Okay. I, I would never feel comfortable making a statement like that. I yeah. think. Like, for me, as a writer, all of my characters are built from aspects of self and aspects of mm. things, the people I've known and observed, and and that's how you write. That's right. how you make people real. You find uh, something you do understand about an yep. emotional state. Yep, you write what you know. kind of explodes that. Mm-hmm. But it would make me quite uncomfortable, I think, to write me. Yeah. It would be, and I hope this word is all right for the radio, masturbatory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Did you ever surprise yourself through the process of writing and rewriting this novel? Like, did you ever just come across things that you were like, whoa? (laughs) Oh, all the time. Um, Colonel Azalea is, I knew I needed a character to do a very particular thing in chapter three. Like, I had not planned him. Um, I needed somebody to sort of kickstart the things are not as they seem. You do not get to just, like, go slow here, Mahit, plot. So I was basically like, okay, I need a person to come in and be like, actually, we have a problem. And I was like, okay, who, who, I, I need a guy. What, what kind of guy? Okay, old grad school friend of <laughs> Reese Grass. Let's go. And, and then he just walked right off the page. And he was a joy to write yeah. and but I had not planned him at all. I love um, that. I don't outline that much. Yeah. Aha. Score one for pants. <laughs> well see, I don't actually think that the plotting versus pantsing thing is a real dichotomy. <laughs> um, because I do plan. Mm. I plan enormously. Mm-hmm. I just don't write down what will happen next. Mm-hmm. And I knew the, the last scene of this book from about two days after I started writing this book. Mm. I didn't know how I was going to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, some of the uh, dramatic events at the end, I did not figure out until about three months before I wrote them, which was quite close to the end of the writing process entirely. But I sort of, I plot in a fractal way, I do things like allow a character to walk in off the stage and then sit down and think about, okay, so if this guy exists, what then? Yeah. And right. that gets explored and played with. So while I don't have outlines, I do have a bunch of notes. Mm. And they're notes about motivations. They're notes about mm. history. Sometimes I will write little vignettes, which are not, don't ever get anywhere near the text of their character sketches or scenes that are from a different part of these characters' lives. Yeah. But I love that because it's like helping you in that moment 
to decide later, like, how would this character react? And so mm-hmm. it's right. even if that does that particular thing that you're talking about doesn't make it into the book, you can go, well, yeah. when I did that, <laughs> you know, they acted yeah, like this. It's all, it's all sort of like figuring out, um, making people, making people real. Yeah. Um, character work is that process. Yes. And character work is actually something I have to work pretty hard at. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't one of the skills I got in the box. Yeah. Hmm. I actually get a lot of inspiration on building character from Stephen King. Ah, I was just thinking. Some of the best goddamn characters. Yeah. Yeah, I'm teaching on writing right now. And as we're talking, I was just. I love that book. Yeah, I was thinking about what he says. It's one of the only writing advice books I will actually recommend to people because it's not a writing advice book. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, it isn't. Right. It's a. It's a CV, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this. It's a memoir. Yeah, right. A highly focused memoir piece about a, the significant process in this man's life. Yeah. I gave up on I I used John Gardner's um, writing book, and yeah, <laughs> I'm getting slanty evil eyes here. <laughs> um, I've had my students read And now I've kind of switched to, I'll find like YouTube um you know writers on writing and this semester i started mm-hmm. with neil gaiman who talked about confluence yeah. love that and how that creates you know ideas and stephen king says the same sort of thing and so they don't have to read 200 pages of <laughs> people referencing yeah. you know the odyssey and the iliad yeah. And, yeah oh and and like most people don't actually do that yeah is the thing yeah right like when i talk about my pop being fractal i think about world building as a kind of process of supersaturating a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think about a thing that I'm really into and I'll go read a bunch of books about it because I am really into it mm-hmm. um, and talk about it. Right now I'm doing the preparatory work for a novel which is going to be about the Southwest and climate change and cyberpunk and oh, nice. <laughs> um, So right now board. I'm really obsessed with fire. in the sense that I want to know how firefighters do their job and how they recognize arson versus accidental and the history of great fire investigations. Um, I've read the entire Grenfell fire report recently Mm. and none of this is going to be directly useful. All of it is like charging that battery. And there's a point at which there's a, a flash fire over a flashover moment and the the solution goes crystalline, and then when I think of fractals, it's those the the crystal solution grows crystals, and they have the habits of the crystal are based on what you put in the solution. Yeah, that's beautiful. It is. <laughs> it is. Thank you. <laughs> I had to figure out how to describe it because I don't plot and I don't pant. Yeah. So yeah, the idea of writing a discovery draft horrifies me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's a dangerous life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So back to the novel. uh, It asks us uh, to consider identity, right, on many levels. More than once, Mahit asks how wide, and I really love this uh, concept, how wide the text colony concept of you, quote unquote, might be. Not only does the stationer tech allow one person to kind of join consciousness with another, but the empire conquers and assimilates as it expands. And in one of the interludes, uh, two minds are compared to a star chart, which I love too, um, linking the individual 
you know, individual identity all the way up to the cosmic um, in some ways. Uh, yet there seems to be a line beyond which we, we do find the other, right? Like Mahit, um, as a non-citizen, is considered a barbarian and a savage and so on. Um, can you talk a little bit about the way the novel deals with both individual and sort of cultural identity? Yeah, there's a lot in here, so I'm going to try to pick and choose a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, central theme, so mm-hmm. it's all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The concept of you was one of those happy surprises, actually. I wrote that line, I think the first iteration of it is like in chapter two or yeah. chapter three. Yeah. And I wrote the line, try, and, and it was just like, because Mahit would say that, and then I was like, oh, there, there, I got it. That's the thing. I'm yeah. just confusing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's the difference. That's the question. The question is, where does someone become a person? Yeah. What makes a person? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this book, the ways that I'm exploring that are both the multiplicity of station or immigrant lines and that sense of is a person the same person if they also have a long chain of memory that they didn't produce. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is up to you, not up to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... By contrast, where is the sense of personhood generated culturally? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What counts as a person? Is a, is a barbarian only three-fifths of a person? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And the way that Tixkalan thinks about citizen and barbarian is, again, from Byzantium. That's the old Roman idea of, uh, and the Greek idea of, um, barbar, barbarai versus Romanoi. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of no matter how assimilated you are, you are never really one of us. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of those deep, deep things. And it's, it's the central conflict between Three Seagrass and Mickey, who truly like each other as people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all apart from being into each other also. Mm-hmm. But, they they like they they would be friends whether or not they were sexually compatible, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. except for this really basic problem. Yeah, where no matter how much Three Seagrass thinks that she is not biased, she is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she has all of these unconscious assumptions about. Well, barbarians are like this, but my barbarian is special. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I have a black friend. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter how much Mahit wants to be a participant in Tixlonly culture, she is aware of the fact that they will let her in, but not accept her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she also wishes that she didn't want it, which is one of those yeah. things that... I have some very beloved friends um, who come from cultures which are much more recently colonized than mine. Um, a friend from the Philippines and a, a Lebanese-Canadian friend. And it was conversations with them about the way that the mind itself is colonized so that you can absolutely desperately love the culture of that is destroying your culture. Mm, yeah. And that's real and genuine and not false consciousness. That's yeah. real. Yeah. It is not 
something imposed on you from the outside. It is your response to what you see. And at the same time, that sense of self-hatred for Mm -hmm. loving that thing that you know Mm -hmm. is imposed on you. But that doesn't make the love not real, and it doesn't make the thing you love not beautiful. Yeah. Um, And going off of, like, the idea of beauty and uh, poetry um, in in the Texclani culture is incredibly important. It's used to code and decode the world inside the empire. Uh, and during the oration scene, after hearing nine Mays, Mahit even notes that she is understanding politics by means of liter- literary criticism, which as a literature teacher, I kind of love. Uh, in, in some ways, this concept carries over into our own politics, right? Um, it not our understanding of our political purpose and intention a sort of reading of our own like national meta-narrative? Absolutely. Poetry in Texcalan is used in a political sense almost always and yeah. in a culturally reinforcing sense almost always. And this is not something I made up. Mm-hmm. There are so many cultures, both historical and modern where this kind of valence attached to poetry is a real political tool. Um, if you look at the protests in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong mm. right now and the ways in which um, Hong Kongers are making use of the historical literary culture of both China and Hong Kong um, to make encoded statements to mm. repurpose propaganda. Uh, you see this going on right now. Yeah. Um, political poetry in the United States has been defanged a little, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean it's not still here. And the place that we see it most, I think, is in rap, yeah, yeah. which oh, is definitely. political poetry. Yeah. And is often protest and anger and community building and communication. Um, One of the things that I ran into in a course I took on disaster planning, um, the other thing I do is I'm a city planner. Uh, Now I stopped being a historian um, (laughs) and became a city planner. And currently I work as a policy advisor to the Department of Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources, state of New Mexico. Wow. So, um, as of last week, (laughs) but, uh, um, a professor of mine gave me this amazing assignment and we were talking about, uh, disaster response, um, after Katrina, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And he gave us a whole bunch of music written in the two to three years after the hurricane by New Orleanian rap artists that were some of the clearest bits of disaster communication and cultural encoding of what had happened that I have ever seen. And it is something that I, it changed the way I thought about some of the ways that culture absorbs trauma, our culture. Yeah. And I mean, go to an open mic night, and most of it will be terrible, but the bit that isn't, that's political poetry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and in this novel, which for me, 
what was refreshing about it was that the empire itself <laughs> prizes poetry what whereas right now our <laughs> our the political powers that be are anything but poetic our poetry is pretty subversive and uh, oppositional yeah. to well, hamburgers and things. I trump's tweets that yeah. Yeah. i i cannot imagine the current president <laughs> reading poetry yeah. let alone reciting it yeah right. um yeah i i have that is a category violation problem for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's something that I would like pay good money yeah. to see. In Photoshop, you know, a book of Yeats. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's too good for him. Yeah, I know, I know. It would destroy Yeats. No, no, you got to take <laughs> the yeah. tweets and turn the tweets into poetry. That's what that I said. That has been done. Yeah, that has been done. Um, I need to there, see. Oh, there's so many good parody Twitters. Yeah, yeah. The last thing we usually ask all of our uh, writers is, do you have any advice for beginning writers? Yes. Good. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> I have lots, but I think the most central one is don't wait to tell the story that you're obsessed with. Mm. Mm. This is something that I used to have a lot of trouble with. There's like this pernicious writing advice that goes around on the internet, which is like your first million words are crap. Yeah. And some people find that really freeing because that means that they don't have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, I found it utterly paralytic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, why would I write anything if mm -hmm. it's going to be bad? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, the idea that you can write the story you want to write right now, mm -hmm. it might not be good enough when you write it. And you may be disappointed in what you end up with and it won't be ready to send to a publisher or a magazine. But that doesn't mean you can't try it again. Mm -hmm. And it will be better work if mm -hmm. you write the work you want to write rather than the work you think you're capable of writing. Yeah. I have students who write and will send me messages and say, I'm, I have this really great idea for a short story. And they give the, the, they'll pitch it and then I'll, they'll say, should I write it? And, and I'm like, y yeah. yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Even if, if you have an idea, you should yeah, write it. Uh -huh. Right, exactly. And you may get stuck. You may, I mean, I have, there's a book that I still don't know how to write that mm -hmm. I will probably be dancing around until I'm like in my 60s. Yeah. Um, but that does not mean that I don't use bits of that concept and that idea now. Yeah. Yeah. And, I guess the other thing is don't write what you think people want, like mm. what you want to read. Yeah. There is no magic get published button. Mm -hmm. You can't write to the market. The market moves in both too fast and too slow for you. Mm -hmm. um, by the time you have written the next great vampire novel, vampire novels will be out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, on the other hand, if what you really, really want to write is a vampire novel, mm -hmm. you can write your vampire novel, and if it's really good, someone will buy it. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And, I don't know, ignore all writing advice. <laughs> yeah. The only the only good advice is the technique that works for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what we, we asked Ken Liu. That's the first thing he said. <laughs> he said, all the stuff your teachers told you, <laughs> ignore all of that stuff. You're, Throw it out the window. Yeah. Your taste is the, um, is the one that's prime. The, the ones that I would hurl with extreme prejudice are Kill Your Darlings, mm. which 
people seem to think means get rid of the stuff you actually like. Yeah. Mm. No. (laughs) (laughs) People seem to think that that means get rid of all the things you liked. Mm -hmm. In its original formulation, it was more, if there's something that you love, but that's what's preventing this scene from working, cut it out. Mm -hmm. You can use it later. Yeah. Like, not get rid of the, what you love, but don't hang on to something that is pretty and precious to you if it's not working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to keep it just because you like it, yeah. not get rid of it because you like yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and the other bit of writing advice that I would... Um, <laughs> Get rid of, I'm trying to figure out, like, if if this is, if I would actually eat this or just (laughs) watch it, um, is write every day. Because some people find write every day an amazing thing. Yeah. It's hard. And I don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It can create a kind of feedback loop of, well, I didn't do it, so I'm a failure. Yep. Yep. And, Life is complicated and intense. Yes. I have a pretty demanding day job, and I also care about being, like, present for my wife when I'm not at my day job. Yeah. And I care about writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This means that there are days when I write 3,000 words and days when I write zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Yes. And that's fine. Yes. And it may turn out that the process that works for you is... Write 500 words every day. Yeah. I know people yeah. for whom that fixes their life. Some yeah. people like need that structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or the rhythm of it. Yeah. And also the sense of, ah, I have done my task and now I'm done. Yeah. I've done it sometimes. Often I have a sort of standing process of write 100 words a day. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to, you can keep going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's not something I hold myself to. Like, It, it sounds more freeing for a, sure. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today yeah, thank and you. talking thank with you. us. It was amazing. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad you invited me. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> the Pub is produced at the University of Wisconsin Parkside from the studio at WIPZ 101.5 FM. You can tune in Sundays at 2 to catch new episodes. And you can also find us on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or you can head over to our website at straylightmag.com for fiction, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for regular updates on new content. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. <laughs>